Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 338 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're blending the lenses of sex, race, and consent to yield a profound understanding of intimate selves. In this episode, we're delving into a powerful topic that challenge and illuminate our perception of trauma, pleasure, sexual experiences, and the multifaceted concept of traumatophilia. Our guest today is Avi Sakatopolio, Avgi, practicing psychoanalyst and esteemed faculty member at New York University's postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, brings a unique perspective to these conversations. A Cypriot and Greek immigrant living and working in New York City, Avgi, rich cultural background and professional expertise, promises a dynamic, insightful exploration of today's topic. This episode is an invitation to break barriers, challenge perceptions, and enrich our understanding of ourselves and our intimate relationship. And before we begin, be sure to check out our YouTube channel at Sexology Podcast, where we delve into a vast range of fascinating topics around relationship and sexual health. Make sure you're liking our channel, share and subscribe and add to our community of informed, open-minded listeners. Now, without further ado, let's delve into this exciting episode. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. It is my honor to welcome a colleague who recently published his wonderful book, Sexuality Beyond Consent, Avgi Sakatopolo. Tarsha, Avgi, welcome Tarsha. Thank you so much for the invitation, Nazanin. I am very excited about our conversation. I was just sharing with you that how at times when we think about sexuality, we think about like very kind of straightforward ways, right? Like we always get see these articles online, five steps to a stronger orgasm, two steps to the hotter sex states. But what I appreciate about your book, it talks about the complexity of eroticism and sexuality. So tell us what inspired you to write the book. Mm. I, in some ways, wrote a book as a way of trying to cope with the strain of an experience that I had in encountering a theatrical play which is called Slave Play, Jeremy O'Harris's Slave Play. I, I watched this play and was quite astonished by it, though not in any way that I could recognize, not in the ways that one or I have seen works of art and been interested in it. Some, something really different happened about this play. And then I started becoming preoccupied with it, with writing about it, teaching about it, engaging with it. And in some ways, the book was kind of like the outcome of the efforts to to cope with, cope with and think about what happens in this play and what happened in me in the encounter with a play. Fascinating. I haven't watched the play myself. I just read about the plot in the book from your side. Can you tell us a little bit for our audience? I haven't, they haven't watched the play. What is the play about? Hmm. You know, I'm always so hesitant to talk about the play when I'm asked about it because I don't want to spoil it for people. So I'll see if I can, I'll try to avoid this, but we'll see when we go, where we go in our conversation. But this, this is a play that 
tries to offer the audience an experience of something. And that experience is about, at least the way that I understand it, some people might feel differently about it, is the experience of what it's like to encounter the erotic in the domain of trauma. In this particular play, the the trauma in question is racial trauma of the past and of the present, the ongoing racism and anti-Blackness in our cultures. And rather than it's the, the usual approach of trying to educate and trying to show the problems with whiteness, the play does something else entirely, which is that it shows the excitements, the libidinal excitements, the erotics of racism play out on stage and also disturb the audience in a way that one is in many ways unprepared for. So right from the start, it stages a conversation that is not about what you were describing earlier as the simplistic five ways to do this or seven ways to not do that. But it's really about throwing you into a tailspin. And it is, it's, it's through that that it does its work on you. Amazing. And I know in the book, you talk about the vignettes of clients that you've worked with and how unexpected experiences people have when they, when they have erotic encounters, whether for positive or for negative. So can you tell us more about how can trauma and negative sexual experiences be something beneficial for people or how can people make meaning of that that could be healing? Mm. So one of my, so I, I critique a couple of different tendencies that we have in the book that we have in thinking about sexuality. The one is the notion of affirmative consent and the idea that if, if only we are careful enough with each other, we negotiate boundaries well enough, we are clear, crisp in our communications and other people respect our boundaries, that will necessarily produce experiences that are pleasurable or ethical or important. And I, I, make, I make what to some people may sound like a pretty counterintuitive argument, which is that while being feeling safe and feeling affirmed is certainly important in a variety of different ways, that is not what, how transformational experiences happen. Transformational experiences do not come from safety. They come from being exposed to things that are at the limits of our understanding and at, at the limits of what we think we know about ourselves and each other. So from that perspective, rather than think about safety in an erotic encounter, I, I think more with, with risk, not which is not the same thing as danger, even though it can at times open up to danger. So that's that's one aspect of what I'm working with. The other aspect that I'm working with is what it means to take seriously the fact that for many, many people, experiences trauma are not only experiences that have disrupted them or that have been difficult or that people just want to get over with and get away from, but that we are also in a really strange way that we don't talk about gravitating to go back to the traumatic, not just because we are so kind of like caught up in it, but also because there are ways in which going back to trauma, we are drawn to touching our wounds. We are drawn to picking at our scabs. And that is a very kind of like paradoxical and unexpected way to think about sexuality. Usually when we encounter somebody returning to the site of trauma in the domain of the erotic, like for example, somebody who has been sexually abused and ends up finding themselves being turned on by experiences that 
are right over the line of consent or play with this notion of whether you agree to something or not, or whether somebody's taking you against your will or not. These kinds of experiences frighten us as a culture. And yet it is, as I, I see this in my practice, and I'd be interested to whether you see this in your practice too, that we are like, there's something that can be quite erotic about this proximity, this, uh, there's an erotic affinity to, to the traumatic. And I felt that it was very important to have ways to talk about that. I appreciate it because that concept is very intriguing. I know that like in kind of quote graduate school, they talk about how repetition compulsion can be a negative things, right? Going back, doing the thing, like repeating the trauma can be a harmful thing, but you're saying that it could be beyond that. What's happening is beyond it could be pleasurable. Can you give us an example of what comes to mind? I, I get what you're talking about because I read your book, but for our listeners, tell us more about that. Yeah, like I'm so glad that you're bringing in repetition compulsion because that's that's right on. Like the typical way of understanding why somebody would want to engage erotically around their trauma is that something is unworked, something is so excessive and so impactful that the person is compelled to repeat, compelled here, also marking the fact that one cannot get away from it, as opposed to, and I, I would say that the, the term that I use in the book to describe that way of thinking, where the idea is that all you want to do is get away from your trauma, is that it is traumatophobic. And I use the word traumatophobic to capture the way in which we are afraid of the tendency, the very human psychic tendency to want to, to be drawn back to our wounds. So the counter to that would be traumatophilia. And I, I flesh out in Sexuality Beyond Consent a whole way of thinking about what it means to work with patients or be in a culture that, like where we are exposed to people who are kind of like finding, find themselves interested in their encounters with a traumatic. So one, one example would be, and this is kind of like something that I've seen in the clinic kind of like time and again, would be somebody who is, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm not going to go to the clinic. I'm going to go to thinking about the play that I was talking about. So in, in slave play, you see a, a number of quote unquote scripted encounters between interracial couples that are organized around the pivot of racism and around the pivot of what in any other social encounter or intimate encounter would feel just abusive and look and seem abusive. So this this partners have in the play negotiated sexual exchanges that are orbiting around the racial humiliation, racial objection, racial stereotypes. And you see them replay every single trope and every single kind of like facile categorization that you would expect and which normally makes you cringe. And it makes many people cringe in the play as well. But the play does force you to engage with the fact that these are also desires that some people have and leads you down the path of asking the question of, so what could happen with this kind of, what could we make of these kinds of desires if we don't give in to the immediate impulse to say, oh, this is just repetition compulsion. Oh, this is just a symptom of trauma. If this person had dealt with their trauma or so the story goes in our theory, then they wouldn't have to do this. They would be able to have healthier sex, normal sex. And I'm putting these words in quotes and, and scare quotes as I'm saying them. But of course, when you're talking about racism and when you're talking about structural conditions from which one can never escape, like what would it mean to cure racial trauma? I mean, good luck with that. It is ongoing. It's been 
generational, intergenerational. And, you know, it's it's not changing anytime soon. However much progress may have been made, we're also very, very slow in our difficulty as a culture addressing anti-Blackness and racism more generally. So if the promise of healing trauma, which is a promise that we fail, like, you know, the psychoanalysis, the clinical domains promise healing, but the truth is nobody ever gets healed of their trauma. Like, I've never heard of anybody ever kind of like returning to a pre-traumatic state or to a pre-lapsarian moment. So if that is not a realistic covenant, what, how else might we understand those kinds of desires? And we see in that playing in a variety of different anecdotes from the clinic and other places that I speak about in the book that other things begin to happen, strange things, unusual things in the opening up of the space, in the clearing away from how we are taught we should relate ethically to each other and what happens when two people step into the fray together of taking risks with each other and engaging desires that from the outside and from a distance look like they're just symptoms of trauma, but open up to experiences that are unexpected and oftentimes transformational. And I know in the book, you brought up a few cases of clients and things related, which is very, very interesting. And it is hard to cultivate that environment, I can imagine, right? That you talk about like how there are some shortcomings with affirmative consent. So let's talk about that. What are some of the shortcomings that, that you see with this approach towards consent? Well, affirmative consent, first of all, imagines that we know exactly where our limits are and that where our limits are at the moment that we communicate them is also where they're going to be at the moment of the encounter. So even when you're talking about a, a consent that is ongoing and enthusiastic, the ongoingness that we imagine as if kind of like you can consent in the micro moment still misses the fact that that the traumatic experience erupts unexpectedly. The fact that our desires are conflicted, that we are not cohesive, ambivalent human beings who can just want just this or not don't want that, that oftentimes we are ourselves quite divided around our desires and get pulled in different directions. And it also has this con affirmative consent kind of like is based on this like very interesting fiction that there's one person who has power and another person who doesn't. And the respective boundaries hinges on the person who doesn't have power communicating clearly and the person who has power respecting those boundaries. But that's not what happens in relationships. In uh, the more intimate a relationship gets, the deeper a relationship gets, the more vulnerable two people are to each other. And the question for me begins to migrate from affirmative consent to another type of consent that I introduce in the book and that I call limit consent to capture how it comes very close to the limit of what we don't know about ourselves. And I give the example kind of like in the opening of the book of a patient of mine who about whom I'm writing with her permission and who I call Carmen who negotiates this sexual scene with her partner and her partner, Ava, is going to slap her during the scene and that they've discussed it ahead of time. And when, so Carmen recounts to me in the session that when she slapped, the, the slap is, is so perfect. It's the right amount of force, the right part of her face, the right expression on Ava's face. And she's totally undone by how exquisitely pleasurable the slap feels. And she safe words and stops the encounter. So I, I use this 
rather unexpected instance of safe wording. Usually safe wording is about somebody having violated something or you encounter something in yourself that you didn't know was there and then you stop it because it's going to get too much. Here is, with, with this kind of example, we begin to see that consent is also about what we consent to internally, what we allow ourselves to experience as it emerges unbidden without having negotiated for it, but also neither as a negotiation nor as a violation. So affirmative consent really plots sexuality along permission and violation in a pretty binary way. Limit consent is interested in the gray zone, not of whether consent happened or not, but in the gray zone of what it means to take risks with each other and to take risks with oneself. So it opens up the space for thinking about erotic encounters, not as safeguarding the self, but actually as risking the self and risking something in the encounter with each other because of the bond with the other person, because and because of the interest in experience and having new experience. I found it very interesting when you talked about consent being an internal affair. And I can imagine that if we're buying into this idea of affirmative consent, it could be easier to have this encounter in a way, quote unquote, unquote, easier with, with someone that you haven't built that trust. But if we're doing limit consent, like I feel like it brings more vulnerability and makes it more exciting. But how can we know that boundary within us? Yeah. What, what a terrific question. I think that's exactly what it comes down to. And I should say before I, I delve into that, that I am not suggesting that affirmative consent is useless. I'm not trying to say we should do away with that. Certainly feminisms have fought very, very hard to establish space for especially women or female identified persons or different femininities to be able to claim space for their boundaries and to protect themselves. So I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that conflict violation does not happen or that there's no reason why. I'm not saying, well, why are we even thinking about that? Obviously, we all know why we have to think about that. But I am also saying that taking a risk opens up to something else. Now, when I talk about risk, I take risk very seriously. In other words, I'm not just saying, well, take the risk. It's going to pay off. Like risk is risk. And what that means is that in the moment of what opens up in yourself and what opens up in the other person, things can happen that may be difficult and in the aftermath even traumatic. So, for example, I speak about the play that I mentioned earlier in this regard, and I, I speak about how in encountering a work of art, especially if you're not one of these people who reads reviews, who is going in really prepared, reads the script, knows exactly what's coming, or at least you think you know what's coming, in encountering a work of art, sometimes you get more than what you bargained for. I would say oftentimes, if you're lucky, you get more than what you bargained for. That's the other reorientation around consent that kind of like this, encountering something at the limit of what you can bear is not necessarily a problem. It's also an offering. And with art, if it's a skillful offering, you get to have an experience. But with this play, you walk in and, you know, the director says, you come into a play called Slave Play, like something brings you in here. Like, what do you think you're going to see, right? So there's already kind of like all of these expectations that we have when we enter either an interpersonal contact or we enter an engagement with, say, a theatrical piece. And oftentimes you don't know what these expectations are until they're broken. 
until they are trespassed. And only then in the aftermath, do you have a sense of what that might be like? For example, Carmen, who thought she was negotiating a slap, but she ended up realizing that she was negotiating a mediocre slap, not an exquisite slap, right? So then the question becomes, what are you going to do with that gap between what, whether you knew it or not, you, you, the expectation that you're walking into a situation with and the ways in which the experience sometimes may even exceed your expectation. That too might be difficult, right? It doesn't, it doesn't go without saying that that's easy to deal with. And it is, it is there that limit consent kind of like really shines because it is there that we encounter the, the really formidable forces of what, like working with psychoanalysis, I talk about as the sexual drive and kind of like these incredibly, in, these intensities that have to do with our bodies, that have to do with our otherness to ourselves, like the parts of ourselves that we don't know and can never fully know. And all of this kind of like the effervescence of all of this, like bubbling to the surface. And that can feel incredibly exciting and also very frightening. As so many wonderful points that you brought up. And I was thinking about this idea of how you talk about race and sexuality and even on kind of like in king community when there are race play and also this can be very erotically charged and some people are feeling uncomfortable being in that space. So tell us more about that. How do you think race influenced our sexual life? Mm. That's such an important point because the tendency to th in thinking about race is to think mostly about exploitation, oppression, aggressions, macroaggressions, microaggressions, and so on and so forth. And certainly these are very important facets of it. But to, to some degree, the racing of subjects has always been a sexual has always happened through a sexual technology, either of reproduction to, to, to increase wealth and to increase kind of like white people would increase their property in the, the South by kind of like the production of black children who would eventually become workers. So one becomes richer through kind of like through, through sexuality of the, the sexuality of the enslaved. So there are so many ways in which this uh, sexuality and race have always been not just in conversation with each other, but really imbricated with each other. And from that perspective, separating out the two has is, is a process of what I would think of as really oversimplifying race and oversimplifying sexuality. And one way to think about racism is that it comes with a certain set of erotics, that are not the erotics of connection or of a, of a close bond or the way that we like to think usually of eroticism, but also have to do with the, erotic, the erotics of humiliation and the erotics of objection and the erotics, the way in which hatred also ripples through the erotic. And here we are in the domain that, in a domain that black feminisms and black of, and queer of color critique especially has done a lot of very important work to flesh out how these lines are not, we should not be avoiding them. We should become curious about these kinds of threads and rather than recoil from them, allow ourselves to see what happens in, in the, the contact zone between otherness and like what in psychoanalysis we call polymorphous perversity. So I'm, I'm thinking in the book with authors like Jennifer Nash and Ariane Cruz and Amber Musser, who are all very important theorists doing work that is curious, profoundly curious, very seriously curious and non-judgmental about the, the, the possibilities that arise around encounters that we would otherwise think of as just pathological or the manifestation of racism. 
and to wonder about the power, the erotic power of stereotype and the and what it means to take those risks with each other. Like part of what happens in the play that I was talking about is the place in some ways organized around the fact that a black woman is asking her white husband to racially humiliate her. And he he refuses to do so. He's unable to do so. So rather than the usual ask that we would expect of a black woman to a white man to respect her, to value her, to recognize her, to see her, she has, she really twists the question of being seen from being seen as somebody who is like worthy of her boundaries being respected to somebody whose boundaries will be pushed. And in that sense, interestingly enough, she also pushes him because he doesn't want to be the white guy who is aroused by his own racism, which is a lot of what this play negotiates. This is fascinating. And what brings up, which I, I can understand, it's an individual decision, is kind of like opening up space for being kind of like being exploring are the edges of their limits, as you mentioned, that kind of like this risk-taking part of us. How can they step into that space? Like, how do people cultivate that ego strength? Mm. You know, that word that you just used, decision, is so critical to this because we have been, you know, and this is, we, we have been told an affirmative consent is actually quite consistent with the story that Sexuality is something that has to do with our conscious agency, with that, the exercise of our will over ourselves, over the other, that it has to do with our capacity to make decisions and be agentic. But, and this plays a very good example of this, that's why I'm working with it so, so deeply. But desire also has to do with history, our own personal history, the history of like racial history, the history of ethnicity and religion. And these histories are not at our command. We do not control them. We do not choose them. We do not get to say what we're going to do with them. So the kinds of desires that I'm talking about, so for example, when we're talking about race play, are not desires that are commanded by the subject who experiences them. They are desires that in some ways are eruptive and which may or not feel even right to the subject who has them, but are nevertheless pressing. The question of what what can happen in the intersection between arousal and something that is not entirely at your control is is the question of limit consent. And one of the perhaps unexpected and surprising things that I say is that whereas affirmative consent works to protect us so that we do not become traumatized or overwhelmed, part of what limit consent funnels out towards is the possibility of becoming overwhelmed. And that may sound quite alarming or surprising to some people because who would want to be overwhelmed? But the answer is actually not a few people. <laughs> quite quite many of us may be drawn to experiences that can feel overwhelming. And I, I flesh out in the book in great detail what stakes are for these experiences of overwhelm, both personally and politically, what they can enable in terms of like nothing less than psychic transformation. And for our listeners, I highly, highly recommend for them to get your book because you go in depth on these concepts and it's very psychologically interesting and it makes sense, right? Because there are so many erotic encounters that most people have that you cannot make sense of it. Like what makes this so charged for me? And I think you talk about it in the book. So tell us more about where can people get the book? 
the emphasis that you put on charge is great because that's very much what the book is about and all the details that you were describing are kind of like I go through them in, in great with a lot of attention. The book is available through my press, which is NYU Press, and that's the best way to buy the book or from your local kind of like small booksellers is always preferable. Also, I am very interested in what people make of these ideas. I have written the book such that it can be read by people who are not necessarily in our field, who are not well-versed in these matters from an academic perspective. So I've written the book to be accessible and approachable and interesting for a variety of different audiences. So anybody who reads a book and has like thoughts or wants to leave, like wherever you leave your reviews, I, I read reviews, I engage with with my readers. So I'm really interested in what people make of these ideas. Beautiful. And how can people get a hold of you to tell you their impression, their experience with the book? Well, I really love to hear from readers and I've been lucky enough to have heard from several different kinds of readers across the world. So I am very open to that and I do respond. So the way to reach out to me is through Instagram. My the way to reach me at Instagram, it uh, is at avgolis98, A-V-G-O-L-I-S 98. And interested readers can also look at my website, which is com. Beautiful. So the information will be in the show notes. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. And it was lovely to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much, Nazanin, for the opportunity. I hope you guys found our conversation meaningful. And I'm curious to know, what did you think about the concept of limit consent versus affirmative consent? Of course, we had multiple episodes on trauma and sexual health and how you can work toward recovery, which is a different approach. So if you are interested on those topics, we also have several episodes on those. But I invite you to check out Avgi's book, Sexuality Beyond Consent. And I would love to hear your thoughts about this conversation. You can DM me on Instagram about your thoughts about this episode. Our handle is at Sexology Podcast. All right, I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.